If you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to read 13 through the end for the last time. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 24. Hear now the very words of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak, so that you also may know how I am doing and what I am doing, and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. This ends the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful, God, that you've given it to us. And Lord, we approach this last sermon in the book of Ephesians with hopeful hearts that you will speak to us. God, we come with anxious hearts. Some of us come with very troubled hearts. We need you to minister to us this morning through the preaching of your word. We are hungry for the bread that comes through the preaching of your word. So would you satisfy us this morning? Help me as I preach. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite <clears throat> scenes in movies is the scene in The Gladiator where Maximus, he's with the mounted cavalry and they're charging down the hill and he's yelling, hold the line, hold the line, hold the line. And there's just this sense of, I'm like Maximus. But in reality, I'm not like Maximus and you're not like Maximus. In reality, I'm more like the Israelites preparing to battle the Philistines and every single one of us is afraid to go out and meet that giant Goliath. The battle that we face, though, doesn't oftentimes look like a battlefield, but it is a battle that we face, no less. A battle that we face is our reaction when the diagnosis comes from the doctor that dashes our dreams. The battle that we face is the anxiety that rises because there isn't enough money in the account and the bills are piling up. 
The battle that we face is when one of our adult children isn't walking with the Lord. And the apostle here tells us to stand. To stand. But the problem is I'm not like Maximus. I'm a weak Israelite. I'm a weak Gentile. The problem is that we are weak for the battle, and yet God calls us to stand. But the hope of this text this morning is that God has given us everything that we need in the gospel of Jesus Christ to stand firm. We've been going through this series looking at spiritual warfare for the last couple weeks. And we spent two sermons on it so far. Wish I had some. Here you go, Emma. Copy of the Word of God for you. And as soon as we start thinking about spiritual warfare being modern people, our minds usually do one of two things. There's usually two ditches when we think about spiritual warfare. Either we care too much about it, and we just blame all of our problems on it, we blame all of our actions on the devil made me do it. Or, as modern people, we tend to just totally minimalize it. We have some small category for it, like spinning around heads with people vomiting, you know, Like, we have some category that it might exist, but it doesn't seem to be our normal experience. And when C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters, he wrote this about each of these two poles. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, modern people. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased, they being the demons, are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. And like I said, I think our problem and my problem is that many of us think of spiritual warfare and we just think of the paranormal. We have a category for it. We have a category for the paranormal, but most of us just think it's outside our realm of experience. But you see, that itself is a scheme of the devil to dull us to the fight, to make everything in our life just seem like a natural cause and reaction. But think about, think about the first time the devil, the serpent, the evil one shows up in the Bible. He shows up in the garden, right? And what's the very first thing that he does? He lies. In fact, his name here, devil means deceiver. He is a deceiver. And the very first thing that he does to Eve is he lies to her. He makes her doubt God's goodness. He makes her think that God is holding out on her. And how about us when things don't go as we planned and when God doesn't deliver for us the way that we think he should, don't we doubt his goodness as well? It's exactly what happened to Eve. She thought God was holding back on her, that God was holding the best back for himself, that God was giving her something that was second best. He was giving her something that was second rate. The deceiver, the enemy, got her to believe something that wasn't true about God. And don't at times you see that happening to your own heart. Because of our circumstances, believing that maybe God is holding out on us, 
Maybe God's holding out on you. That's a lie. It's a lie from the devil himself. He is a liar from the beginning. Stirring up within us unbelief. Stirring up within us doubting God's goodness for us. New Testament calls him an adversary. Satan means adversary in the Hebrew. The scriptures call him a tempter or a wicked one or an accuser of the brethren. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that he transforms himself into an angel of light. A description that I think highlights his capacity and his inclination to deceive us. You know, there are two There are two primal motives in every human heart. Two fundamental motives residing in the hearts of everyone. Two motives. Fear and pride. Fear and pride. Fear on the one hand and pride on the other. And we as people live within that spectrum at times. Fear and pride. And the way that the devil works is that his schemes are to play to our predisposed inclinations. So if it's fear for you, then the devil stirs up the sense in you that God doesn't love you. That you're not good enough for him. And your life is marked by always working for his favor. You're always working for his affection. You're always working for his love. Your sin drives you to despair and you have difficulty embracing the free grace of the gospel. But if you're proud, if you're proud, then you hear lies of temptation. You think that you can sin and God will just go ahead and forgive you. The lie is to play up the love of God and to play down the holiness of God. And the fear side is to play up the holiness of God and to play down the love of God. They're both lies. If you struggle with being proud and you hear lies of temptation, your prayer life begins to fade because you don't really see a need for it. You look down on people who struggle with doubts, fears, and anxieties. You become cold to them. Where do you where do you tend to fall in this spectrum? You know, a good, a good way to think about the way that the devil plays to us is if you open up the top of a piano and you just hum a note, you don't even know what note you're humming, one of the strings will vibrate. The strings will match the tone of your voice. You don't even have to know what note you're playing, but you open up a piano and you hum into it and one of the strings will resonate. And that's what the devil does. He knows the string with inside you that resonates and he plays to it. He lies to it. He tempts and he accuses to it. So the job of the Christian, spiritual warfare, if we're then thinking of the devil as one who is the father of lies, certainly there's categories for us to think about the paranormal. But there's also, we must reprogram our responses to the things of life. We must learn to reprogram, rethink our inclinations and responses to the things of life. So that when crisis does come, when loss does come, when tragedy does come, when temptation does come, we have the tools of the armor 
The armor has been put on us so that we know how to stand against the schemes of the devil. Really, all Paul is doing here at the end of his book, he's just wrote to us six and a half chapters about what the gospel looks like in our lives. And at the end of the book, he isn't just throwing on some addendum that has to do with spiritual warfare that has, that's disconnected from the whole. What Paul is doing for us is he's giving us a very practical, on-the-ground way to apply the gospel to our lives and hearts. That's what he's doing. So we're in a battle. We're not like Maximus. We're like the Israelites, and we need to be strengthened in the strength of his might. So we're going to look at some of the remedies that the apostle gives us this morning. Because look, the problem and the answer are both complex and simple. The problem and the answer are both complex and simple. The answer, at the end of the day, the answer is pretty simple. It's that Jesus Christ needs to reign and rule in our hearts. But that is a very complex reality at times. And we need to learn how to think about our own motives, our own inclinations, our own responses, and learn and think through and do the hard work of applying this simple answer to our lives. That's what biblical counseling is. That's what discipleship is. Discipleship is taking this beautiful truth of the gospel and learning how to apply it to the everyday circumstances of our lives. Learning how to apply it to our fear and anxiety. Learning how to apply it to our pride and temptation and so on. But see, evil also has this complex nature to it. It was Richard Baxter who when talking about depression and talking about the causes for depression he said, well, sometimes it could be physical. Could be a physical reason why you're depressed. Could be that you're, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a physiological issue. You're not eating correctly. You're not sleeping well enough. And he goes, but then it also could be a moral issue. Could also be a moral issue. Maybe there's, there's, there's sin in your life and, it's, and you're, you're making decisions that are having a negative effect on your life. And he says, well, maybe it's a social reason. Could also be a social reason. It could be the way that people are treating you. It could be the way that you were, were treated as a younger person, and so on. And he says, but also it could be a spiritual reason. It could be that the devil is telling you lies and you're believing those lies. It could be that you're not given to Bible study and prayer. So here you have Richard Baxter, a 17th century pastor, talking about the complexity of who we are as human beings and the complexity of evil, as it were. But at the end of the day, Paul is going to give us very practical tools and solutions to apply the gospel to our own hearts. So the image that he gives us here is one of battle, battle armor. So let me just ask you a question. When do you put on armor in a fight? During the fight? No. You put on battle armor before the fight. And that's not just a logical point that I'm inferring from the text, okay? The syntax and the grammar of the text implies that you put it on before the fight. The battle armor goes on ahead of time. So, uh, remember when I was a kid, uh, we visited Pearl Harbor. And you know the story 
of Pearl Harbor is one where uh, the Japanese had this surprise attack when all of the Western Pacific fleet was in uh, Pearl Harbor. And there's just pictures of people that are fighting in their pajamas and such. They were just totally unprepared for the fight. They had to start fighting when they weren't prepared to fight. So in a sense, Paul is saying, if you have that image in your mind, he's saying, put the battle armor on ahead of time. Doing the hard work of learning to put on the armor happens now, my friends. Because oftentimes, too often, once we're in the crisis, it's just too late. It's very challenging to put on the armor once you're already in the crisis. Do the hard work now. Look what he says in verse 13. He says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Get ready now so that you can stand when that evil day comes. Now, friends, I know you know this. If you're older than 35, you know this. That suffering is going to come. One of the inevitable realities of life is that suffering is going to come. And if you haven't experienced it yet, the only reason is because you're just not old enough. So it's imperative for us to stand and be ready. But there's also a great truth in verse 13 and 14. It's this, that everything that you need to stand has been freely given to you. Everything that you need to stand, all of the armor that you need has been freely given to you. The command is just to take it up. The command is just to apply it. See, this issue that we're talking about this morning isn't one about you making it to the finish line or not. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are secure in him. The battle is won. The victory is finished. Jesus has conquered sin, death, and the devil. He's coming back one day to take those home who are eagerly waiting for him. That's finished. That's done. But the question is, are we dragging you along bloodied, bandaged, bruised, and broken? Because, brothers and sisters, there is armor for you. There is armor that is freely given to you. And if this has been you in the past, then, brother, sister, heal up. Feel the balm of the gospel this morning. Like the warm sun that comes out in spring and melts the snow, feel the balm of Jesus Christ through the Spirit working in your heart even now. Feel his love, his forgiveness, his grace, his healing power in your life, even now as I preach. He's for you. He's not against you. He's fought the battle for you. And then put on the armor and fight the rest of the fight. So I'm going to break this up the way that uh, John Stott did in his commentary. He breaks it up, and I'm going to add one. So he breaks up the spiritual armor, this, um, this armor, in three categories. 
He calls, well, I'm going to call it the foundation, the ready, and the advance. The foundation, the ready, and the advance. Okay, the first one, the belt of truth. This belt of truth is not just a belt. It's the foundation for all the armor that's going to be put on. Instead of picturing a belt, picture a, a leather apron of sorts that's covering the thighs, and all the other pieces of the armor are going to attach to this belt. They're going to click to it. They're going to attach to it. It's going to hold everything together. Everything else hangs on this belt. It serves to keep all the armor in its proper place, and it binds everything together. It keeps everything in its place, and it binds it all together. Listen, when we think about truth, there is an objective truth in the book of Ephesians. I'll show you what I mean. So the question is, what is the belt of truth? What does truth mean? There's an objective truth in the book of Ephesians. 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him and you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you heard the word of truth, that is an objective reality, okay? But that objective reality, that word of truth, works down into our lives. And it changes the way that we live. Because, you know, the nature of truth isn't that it's just something that can be simply thought upon and say, oh, that's nice, and we move on. But the nature of truth is that it's something that you believe and it changes you. If something is true and you believe it, it has a subjective force in your life. It changes you. It has profound effects of in your life. And all of the book of Ephesians is wrapped up in this idea of objective truth and subjective lifestyle. Remember, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are all what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's bought us, he's saved us, he's called us, he's made us a new people, he's broken down the dividing wall of hostility, he's brought us into the new man, Jesus Christ. And the second half, chapters four through six, are all about what our lives now ought to look like in light of that. What does it do to our lives that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has punched a hole through the top of our universe and come down to us? Does that mean anything for our lives? The answer is yes. So there's a fruit that comes from truth. There is a fruit that comes from truth. This truth, this reality, this truth of the gospel is this centerpiece belt It holds everything together. And everything is kept in its proper place by this truth. You could say it like this. You could say that the reliability of God in the gospel produces in us a reliability on God. Say what? Or you could say it like this. The truth of the gospel produces in us a trust in the gospel. One of the fruits of truth is that it produces trustworthiness. It produces in us the desire to, to lean on God himself. 
But the challenge that we face in the 21st century is that there is so much information coming at us all the time. I remember when I was a teenager, which wasn't that long ago, when it was time to write a report for school, we went to the library and we got out the encyclopedia and we opened it up and we read something from a book and then we wrote the report. But the challenge that we face in such a modern society is that there is so much information at our fingertips and we consume so many sound bites. We consume so many little pieces of information from blog posts, from tweets even, from Facebook pages, and it becomes sort of this, this, this truth of sorts in our lives. And it affects the way that we live. Because that kind of pseudo-truth has within itself a fruit as well. It has within itself a fruit as well. And it can produce inside of us all sorts of things like anxiety, lack of trust. But where, my friends, are you getting your primary information? Because there's one place that you should be getting your truth, and it's from this book. It's from this book. You should be able to so read those articles because the word of God is so saturated in your mind that you read those articles and if there's something in them that's true, then sure, take it. But you should have your feelers up and say, "Eh, I don't think so. That That doesn't jive with what the word of God tells us. But my fear, my friends, especially young people, my fear is that so much information and so much of what we're calling knowledge and how the world works and how our lives work is coming from sources that are unreliable. What's it producing in you? Because the word of God, the truth of the gospel, produces in you a trust. It produces in you a peace. It produces in you a steadfastness. What is this, these other sources, what are they doing to you? Are they producing within you a, 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 a sense of peace and trust, a steadfastness, or anxiety, distrust, fear, We ought to be people who are saturated with the word of God because the foundation is absolutely crucial to the rest of the armor. This belt is absolutely crucial to the rest of the armor. Without this belt, the rest of the armor, just does, it just falls off. It doesn't stand. It falls off. Nothing holds up without it. So I said the foundation, the ready the reason I call them the ready is because in a sense, in a sense they're passive. In a sense, they're armor that you put on that does its job passively. It's not like a sword that you wield that we'll get to in a moment, that's active, okay? But a, a, a breastplate is something that you put on and it does its work passively in a sense. You stand at the ready 
It protects you without you having to do something. Breastplate of righteousness. Now, there's two kinds of righteousness oftentimes talked about in the Bible. There's what we can call Pauline righteousness, the kind of righteousness that Paul talks about in the book of Romans. And that kind of righteousness is the righteousness that's given to us. It's imputed righteousness, as Zach was telling us this morning. Imputed means it's given to you. It's applied to you. It's a righteousness that's given to you by faith in Jesus Christ that gives you an absolute 100% standing before God. God sees you as righteous. He sees you as Jesus Christ. He sees you as holy and blameless in his sight, even though you're not. He's given you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But there's another kind of righteousness spoken of in the Bible, right? When we read oftentimes in the Psalms, when the Proverbs, and we hear of a righteous man, this is not a man that's absolutely sinless and absolutely perfect, but it's a man or a woman who lives uprightly, who walks before God. Not sinless, not perfect, but a man who cares for the poor, a woman who cares for the poor, cares for the orphan, cares for the widow, cares for those that are marginalized in society. He's a righteous man. Doesn't mean he's a perfect man, means he's a righteous man. So the question is, what's in play here? What is the breastplate of righteousness? I would contend that it's actually not Pauline righteousness as he normally talks about it. But what's in mind here is being a person who pursues holiness. That the breastplate of righteousness is one who pursues holiness. In other words, it's cons- it should be considered as the quality of uprightness in Christian character. Look, go back to the schemes that I spoke of in the, minute, in the, in the beginning there. I said, if you're proud, then the devil plays that string of temptation. I can sin, and God will forgive me. But that's incredibly arrogant and proud. And it produces within you a hardness. That's exactly what Hebrews tells us, right? Hebrews tells us, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. But the breastplate of righteousness is a man or a woman who fights, who fights for holiness, who fights for righteousness, who fights even the small sins, as it were, in our lives. You know, the small sins in our lives. You know, when you're in, you're, you're in, a, you're in a group setting and um, there's that person there that just always kind of bugs you, kind of grates you, gets under your skin a little bit, and then they say that one thing that they always say, or they say something, you're like, oh, that's, that's not true. And there's that tendency in your heart to just sort of objectify them, to just say, well, that person is just a whatever. In that moment, what we're doing is we're slowly becoming calloused over. The deceitfulness of sin is slowly creeping in and subtly hardening us. And in those moments we are more susceptible to the schemes of the devil. Our armor has a chink in it, as it were. But the, the response of the one who has on the armor of God is one that sees that he himself in the sight of God is, 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 
is potentially worthy of his wrath, and yet Jesus Christ has come down and saved him and brought us into the family, and in that is an overflow of love so that even the neighbor around us that bugs us, we say, if Jesus Christ forgave me, if Jesus Christ could tolerate me and love me, then I just pray that grace into my heart that I would love this brother, love this sister, and so on. And there's a fruit that comes from that. But, well, before I say the but, I just want to say this. The breastplate of righteousness is the pursuit of holiness. So therefore, pursuing holiness is spiritual warfare. To pursue holiness is spiritual warfare. I said a second ago that it only comes through the righteousness given by Jesus. Excuse me, I said a second ago that there's a different kind of Pauline righteousness that's only given by Jesus, and that's absolutely true. To live this way, to pursue holiness, can only happen to us if we have first received an alien righteousness. So yes, it's true. Paul is talking about the pursuit of holiness. But to pursue holiness to become more like Jesus can only happen if Jesus has first given to us his righteousness. If we've been justified by him. And it's actually him saving us, his justification, our right standing with God that gives us the power to pursue holiness. You know, there's a story where there's about John Bunyan and he's got these religious opponents and they're arguing with him. And they're, they're urging him to not continue to assure his Christian friends of God's unwavering love. He, his friends warn, if you keep assuring people of God's love, they're going to do whatever they want. But Bunyan replied, no. If we assure God's people of God's love, then they will do whatever he wants. The way for us to pursue holiness, my friends, is to continually go back to that great doctrine of justification by faith. That Jesus Christ has given himself up for us freely. And that grace that appeared to a sinner like you and me is what trains us to renounce ungodliness. Titus 2.11, but the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Doesn't say the fear of God has appeared, training us. Doesn't say the wrath of God has appeared, training us. It says the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. So another one at the ready. Shoes that are the gospel of peace. I'm going to pick it up here. Get going. So the use of <clears throat> these, these, these feet, these, these sandals that are in mind here, bring the idea of firmness. They bring the idea of stability, of steadfastness to us. They bring the idea of the ability to stand. Because the sandals that are being taught here are these sandals that are... That are um, they're studded with these hobnails at the bottom. They're not running sandals. They're not sandals that are meant to go running up a hill, but they're sandals that have these spikes going at the bottom that are meant to dig in. They're sandals that are made to dig in against the enemy. 
They're sandals that are meant to bring a steadfastness. And what Paul is saying is he's saying the gospel, when applied to your life, brings a steadfastness to you. It's the gospel of peace. It's the gospel of shalom that brings steadfastness to your life. You know, I think one of the great questions of the Christian life, one of the great questions of the Christian life is this. How do you know that you love God and not just God's blessings? How do you know that you love God and not just God's blessings? It's oftentimes very hard to tell. But the way that you know is that when God takes the blessings away and you still love him. The great gain that we experience in loss is a test of faith. Or another way to ask the question, is your joy, how do you know your joy is in God's blessings or the things that God gives you? Or how do you know that your joy is in actually God himself? Because you don't go to heaven if your joy is in God's things and not in God. We know our faith is real. We know our joy is real when God graciously, kindly brings loss into our lives. Anytime, my friends, a troubled person comes up to you, this reality is operating in the background in every situation that we're dealing with. Every aspect of discipleship, every conversation that we have, every counseling appointment that we have, the question that's operating in the background is, is your joy in God's things or is your joy in God? And this text is telling us that when the crisis comes, when the struggle comes, when the tragedy comes, there is a gospel of peace that can give you the kind of feet that can remain steadfast in the midst of trial and circumstance. And when that happens to you, when that trial comes, remember what James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What an insane statement that is. That's gotta be one of the most crazy statements in the entire Bible. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds? When you lose your job? When a child dies? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Because... No loss is real loss. Everything that's been taken from you 
is added back to you in the full gift of joy in God. A glory that is beyond all comparison. A satisfaction that is far superior and that can never be taken away from you. Something's become clearer to me in Christian ministry that the point of all Christian ministry is to work for your joy. To work for your joy. To work for your joy to see that God himself is more satisfying, more beautiful than anything in all creation. And that the trials and the circumstances in your life are producing in you a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. It's producing you a steadfastness, a completeness that you might be lacking in nothing. The banner over your life will never, ever, ever be loss. The banner over your life will always be gain. And only the Christian can say this. Only the Christian can say that even the bad things, even the worst things that happen in my life are producing for me a weight of glory that is beyond all comparison in this life and in the one to come. We don't know the reasons. I don't know the reasons for your trials, for your circumstances, for your sufferings. I don't know. But I do know that there is a gracious, loving Father who is not indifferent to your pain and your loss and your suffering. And I know that. I know that because of the cross of Jesus Christ. I know that if the worst possible thing that could happen in all of human history, the Son of God being murdered on the cross, crucified, buried, died for our sake, the worst thing that could ever happen in human history, a tragedy, we killed the Son of God. If that could turn out for our greatest good, then the same must be true in your life. There is a steadfastness, a peace that the gospel brings so that you can stand with feet that are secure in that evil day, knowing that Jesus Christ is for you and not against you. He who did not withhold his own son, how will he not graciously with him also give you all things? more than any other part of the, of the equipment, a solid foundation and footing in the gospel brings a peace that is necessary to bring the kind of stability, firmness that every believer's life needs. Let me go quickly here for these last two. I'm just gonna say this, and I'll get into the last one. That the shield of faith is tied to it. The helmet of the shield of faith is tied to it because the shield of faith is now the first active thing that we're doing, right? We're lifting it. When the darts are coming our ways, when the flaming arrows are coming from the enemy, saying God's not good, He's holding out on you. Your life's now second best. Your life's now second rate. It's the shield of faith to say no. I believe the promises of God are true. 
I see the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't understand the circumstances around me, but when I see him and I see him standing there, I know everything's going to be okay. And my hope is secure. Well, let me just close with the advance. The advance is this. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we have prayer. We have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we have prayer. Do you see what the Word of God is in the Scriptures? The Word of God is what called everything out of nothing. The Word of God is what made our hearts alive and respond to Jesus Christ. It took a dead reality in us, something that was cold, far from God, stone-hearted, and the word of God is what removed it and re, re, uh, recreated us, regenerated us by the Spirit. The word of God is powerful and active. The word of God is nothing less than the power of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is the word of God. And do you see this, 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 fan, this, this interesting interplay between the word of God and prayer? Praying for boldness to speak and preaching the gospel. Because there's something interesting that's happening there. There's something interesting that's happening in our proclamation of the gospel and our understanding of the word of God. Because when Paul says, pray that I might speak boldly, he's just got done telling us to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So he's talking about words and speaking. The point is this, that in preaching the gospel, it's the pushing back of darkness. Paul is making a connection between proclaiming. He's saying the gospel, empowered by the spirit, is the means by which well-armed Christians are defended. This is the faithful speaking of the gospel so that men and women in the realm of darkness might be freed by this life-giving word. Men and women might be freed by this life-giving word. But there's also this interplay between the word of God and prayer. And it's happening on several different fronts in our lives. The word of God and prayer happening on a personal level. Devoted to God's word in personal worship, personal study. Praying through God's word together. The word of God should be permeating through our service here. It's necessary to hear the word of God preached and for prayers to be prayed corporately together that our faith might be stirred up and our hope reassured. The word of God is proclaimed in the elements of the table that we partake in together. The word of God is happening and prayer is happening when we're in our community groups and triads and so on. So there's interplay of word and prayer, word and prayer that should be going on in all of our lives. Okay, I'm really going to close this time. In the scriptures, what? In the scriptures, I'm just put my watch. I don't even know why I have a watch. I'm just going to going to tuck it in here. In the scriptures, God Himself is called a warrior. He's called the mighty warrior. In Exodus, he's, uh, when, the, when Moses sings his song, he says, the Lord is a man of war. And in our text this morning is alluding to the Lord as a warrior in Isaiah 59. 
Isaiah 59. But when Jesus, the true son of man, comes on the scene, the way that he does battle and the way that he defeats the powers of darkness is through utter weakness. He defeats it by going to the cross in our place on our behalf. He defeats the powers of darkness. He defeats and binds the devil through absolute weakness when the Son of God is crucified. What that means, because he was resurrected three days later in our place and on our behalf, what that means is that the battle is finished for us. As I told us in the beginning, this is not a question of our assurance with Jesus. This is a question of how are we going to remain in the battle. And we know that our hope is secure. And we know that the victory is won because Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death for us in our place and on our behalf. And whatever darts the devil throws at us, they will not keep us and take us from his loving hand. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. We ask for your blessing now as we head to the Lord's Supper. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come up row by row. Take the elements back to your seat, and uh, one of the elders will come forward to lead us in communion together.